this morning, we are going to do something just a little bit different. You know me, uh, in the usual diet of our church, um, I have the conviction that we are going to uh, preach through a section or a couple of verses of the Bible together, uh, one week at a time, so that we can understand and be exposed to the whole counsel of God's Word. Uh, but I think that also I need to be able to have the ability to call an audible every now and then and to be able to follow what I understand to be the Lord's prompting to go off script a little bit. Uh, sometimes I feel like I write out these four-page manuscripts and, and I meditate on them so much that uh, there's just there's really not a lot that's ad lib. There's really not a lot that's improvised, and and uh, sometimes I feel the confines of doing that. Today uh, I am very much not able to depend on a four-page manuscript. On my drive home from Kansas City on Friday, I just really felt uh, the prompting of the Lord to teach on. Uh, salvation and assurance of salvation. Um, a little bit of that has to do with my story. Uh, I try not to, to get autobiographical too much because I don't want the attention to be on me and my story. I, I think the attention needs to be on God's Word because it's the only thing that has the power to do any spiritual good among us or to save. But I do just want to highlight or just reflect on my story a little bit. I was raised in a, in a home full of believers. My grandfather was a pastor. I heard the gospel articulated from a very young age. And I um, did not know that it was possible um, for people to believe anything else for a number of years in my life. When I became a teenager, though, I uh, began to question a number of things. And... Um, had you know had, had a lot of questions. There's a, there's a sense in which I was you know very precocious, and so when uh, um, a pastor or youth pastor gave me a book, I actually sat down and read it. Right? I think um, as as a podcast uh, host that I listened to uh, one time who went to Yale, uh, he said, you know, I um, when I was in high school, it seemed like all the smart people were the people who just had the questions. And, and the doubts. And then when I got to college, when he got to Yale, he found that actually the smartest people were the people who believed in God there. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which moderately smart people have a lot of questions, and incredibly smart people are the people who are willing to do the reading and press through to get answers. He found that to be the case. I uh, just spent a week with a friend of mine who uh, was in a PhD class with me, and um, you know, he went to uh, he went to Georgetown. Just incredibly bright guy. Uh, when I showed up to college, I found out that a number of my professors um, who had you know had difficulty getting uh, appointments to professorships at other colleges who presented themselves to be very open-minded were very open-minded to all ideas except for theirs. And, um, and so they were not able to uh, to exist comfortably at other places. But one professor who was a um, a uh, science prof, he had spent his career in um, military intelligence. 
If you've ever watched some of these uh, History Channel documentaries on extraterrestrials and UFOs and things like that, you've, you've heard about Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and all the stuff that is supposedly housed in there. Well, he's been inside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Hangar 18, and I asked him, I was like, can you tell me what's in there? He says, it's just a hangar, right? Um, and then uh, the, the dean of our College of Science... Um, uh, he uh, had worked on the Human Genome Project. He's a creationist. and So I began to find out that it's actually, uh, you know, not incredibly stupid to believe uh, the very seeds of the truths that gave rise to what we now know as modern science. Modern science now stands on the shoulders of Christians, and the reason for that is because Christians had a worldview that believed that the earth is static and is sustained by God, and therefore the math that works today will continue to work a hundred years from now. Because God sustains the world, and because math will not change, because the creation has order, the creation is not chaotic, it's the people who believe that the creation was chaotic, and that the creation had no underlying order, those people were the ones who were not interested in science. But the people who were interested in science were the ones who believed, well, if God has set this thing in motion, then we can predict it to work a certain way. And if we can predict it to work a certain way, then the scientific endeavor makes sense and we ought to give our lives to it. Had to do a lot of reading, though, to get there to the ontological argument for God, the moral argument for God, the teleological argument for God. But all of that is short of the things that I'm talking about today. Because it's possible to get to the place where you can intellectually believe that a God exists and still not know him. Right? And I went through a very dark season of my life um, when I was in middle school and high school and even later to some regards where I wondered if I was saved. I think that the reason that so many of us lack a feeling of assurance is because we have lost sight of the fact of assurance. I'm hoping to unpack what I mean here in the next few verses of Scripture. I've really only selected four passages of Scripture. Very much going to be just trying to read them and show what the Bible says about them. The first is in 1 John chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. But here's what I'm trying to get at. I think the default setting, the out-of-the-box factory default for most of us is to think to ourselves that our assurance of, a, of our salvation, of our right standing with God, comes from our feelings. When really, if we are trying to attach our assurance of salvation to our feelings, well, friends, we're going to be on the roller coaster all the times because there is nothing more fickle, there is nothing more unstable than human emotion. I mean, human emotion is incredibly unreliable. The only way 
for us to get assurance of salvation, the only way for you to be comforted in those dark nights of the soul is to set your gaze not on you and not on your feelings and certainly not on what you deserve and certainly not on what you have earned. I am burdened because I believe that so many Christians who are genuinely safe in Christ wrestle with assurance of salvation because they are, without knowing it, placing their salvation or locating it in themselves. And friends, there's a certain logic behind that. Because if you are looking to yourself for your assurance of salvation, you have reason to doubt And you always will. Because you were never saved in the first place because of anything that you did or earned. And so my encouragement to you today is to to stop placing, stop looking to self. Stop doing the mantra of our day, don't look inward. Friends, if you look inward, you will find there what the Bible says you will find there. Dead bones. A tomb, right? You will find nothing there worthy of saving. But, if you set your gaze, not on the subjective, but on the objective. If you set your gaze on what Christ has done. Oh friends, then then there is such a deep and sweet assurance that comes for any who are trusting in Christ. Join me in 1 John chapter 1. Read the same verses that Ben read for us just a few moments ago. He has served us well by setting this up. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It strikes me, this is so much of the, I'm, I, I apologize in advance for this sermon because it's totally off script. It strikes me that isn't this what we're all yearning for? Something that is totally pure. Something in which there is no darkness at all. I mean, there are entire fields of philosophy called aesthetics that uh, that attempt to explain why it is that every single human on the face of the earth can look at the same landscape and everybody, no matter their culture, no matter their religion, no matter their life experiences, everybody can look on that landscape and say, that is beautiful. Everybody, no matter your culture, no matter your religion, no matter your life experiences, when somebody steals your wallet, everybody knows that is bad, right? We are all yearning for something that has no darkness at all. We are all yearning for the logic that says, why is that landscape beautiful? Well, it is because you were created by the ultimate beauty, God himself, and he has implanted inside of you a yearning for what is good. 
and a yearning for what is beautiful. Why is it that it seems that everybody, no matter your background, when you get your wallet stolen or your car has a busted-in window and they've taken your CD player, that would have worked 30 years ago, let me see, um, and they, they take your iPhone or something newer, everybody knows that that is bad. Why? Is it because of social conditioning? Is it because of our cultural background? No, it's because there is a God who is a God of justice and he has wired a sense of justice into you. That's why you get angry. You get angry because you have a sense of justice that is inside of you. So when people say there's no ultimate morality, I just, they just steal their wallet and see how they react, right? We are all yearning toward the ultimate version of of the things that we are now playing with. We want something that has no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, this is for the church people, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, and this is the linchpin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, what has to happen before we get there? Well, of course, there has to be a humbling. We have to be willing to admit that we are sinners and that we are broken. Right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If I can get just a little edgy for a moment, uh, uh, paraphrase R.C. Sproul, who I believe said what we know from 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, people don't reject Jesus because the Bible has contradictions in it. People reject Jesus because they want to sleep with their girlfriend. Right, there is a moral rebellion that is going on inside of our hearts that makes us closed off to the truth of the Bible and makes us come up with all of these excuses why we don't want to believe what is so patently obvious that we are sinners. That we are sinners. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You notice what John fixes or roots the security of our forgiveness in. He doesn't say if you confess your sins, God will make you feel that you are saved, right? He doesn't root it in how you're going to feel. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. 
And he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, if you're in one of those dark nights of the soul and you've seen yourself fail once again and you wonder, could God ever accept me? Could God ever take me back? Remember 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He cannot change. If he were not to forgive you, he would cease to be God because he has attached his willingness to forgive the sinner to his own character. That's how secure you are if you are coming to him in a heart and a posture of repentance. He delights to forgive those who have come to hate their sins. And he will receive you. Because it's not fixed. It's not founded on what you think you've earned. Or what you think you've deserved. Your forgiveness is founded on who he is. He's faithful and just. Faithful means he won't change. Just means, and this is where it gets really, really deep. How could a just judge actually forgive sins? You know, people, people ask the question frequently, how could a good God send anyone to hell? And I want to know, how could a just judge send anyone to heaven? When he's seen what I have done, how could he still be a just judge and let Greg go to heaven? That's the real question. If you go up to the courthouse in Hopkinsville or in Elkton and you see what's on the docket that day and, and you sit down for a few hours and you hear the cases that are brought before uh, the, the juries and, and you see that someone has murdered someone else, I'll tell you a funny story. My, one of my first introductions to Todd County was about a, about a murder trial and someone sat me down and said, Greg, this is what Western Kentucky is like. There was a man who was on trial for killing another man and killing the man's dog. And the jury came back and found him, found him innocent um, of murder, but guilty of killing the dog. And so the Commonwealth's attorney asked the foreman of the jury on the way out and said, how did you guys reach this conclusion? I mean, the man and his dog are shot dead in the front yard. You let the guy off on murder, but you, you got him for cruelty to animals? How did y'all work this out? And the foreman of the jury said, Well, some people deserve killing. But ain't nobody's dog deserved to die. And the man said, Greg, that's western Kentucky. Welcome to town, right? And I said, all right, this is going to be fun. But if you were to go to the courthouse and hear some of the cases and people who were there maybe, you know, dead to rights, I mean, it's, there's no doubt that it was them. And the judge just gets up there and says, you know what? We're going to let him go. We're going to let him off. How could that judge be just? Just is just a word that means fair, right, true. Right? How could that judge be just? Well, he would say he wouldn't be, except in this case where God himself, the judge himself, is willing to take on human flesh to take the punishment so the sin does not get swept under the rug. It gets transferred 
to a spotless lamb who is willing to take your punishment for you so that you can go free. So the sin gets punished, right? We're not going to sweep sin under the rug. It's just it's going to be transferred to someone else's account. This is the love of God. He's faithful. He never changes, but he's just. He's not going to sweep sin under the rug. Your sin will be paid for by someone. My sin will be paid for by someone. It will either be paid for by me in an eternity separated from God in a real place called hell. Or it will be paid for by Jesus. You say, well, Greg, why is God so serious about this? Why does, you know, here I was, I only lived for 65, 70 years. I committed some sins, but I I get punished forever. It's not about the seriousness of the sin. It's about the holiness of the God that the sin was committed against. He's infinitely holy, and so the punishment is infinite. But he's infinitely good. And so the reward for, for placing faith in him is likewise infinite. I've lingered on 1 John 1, 9. There is all kinds of reason for us to believe that we are secure. 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about how it is that we access this security, this assurance. The Bible tells us something that I wish I had learned a long time ago. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says this. Paul is writing, of course, we, we've been studying 1 Corinthians. He's writing 2 Corinthians. He's talking about how his first letter was very hard, very hard for the people to swallow. He's talking about that letter here. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. He said, I wasn't just trying to step on people's toes for the sake of stepping on people's toes. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief, I got caught. I'm upset I got caught, right? I will double down. I will compare myself to others. I feel this grief, I feel this guilt, and so how can I get free of this grief and this guilt? Well, I'm doing better than him over there. He goes to church, I'm actually a better person. I'll compare. I'll compromise. Well, I'm, at least I'm not this, or at least I'm, not that. So I'll try to assuage my guilt through these methods of worldly grief, but godly grief says, I actually grieved God. It doesn't matter how well I'm doing compared to those people over there. It doesn't matter how how I might compromise, or it doesn't really matter that I got caught. God sees everything. I grieved God, and so because I love him, I will repent. I don't want to grieve him with my life. It's the difference between worldly grief that looks like something spiritual so I'm just beating myself up right if I beat myself up enough then God will see that I really mean it the godly grief so I grieved God and so I'll turn away I won't live like that 
anymore. What the Bible is saying here is that for those who have experienced that godly grief and that godly grief has pushed you to repenting, you are safe in Christ because of what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, what do you mean, Greg, if I just mouth the words? No, if you, if you have godly grief and, and you repent, you turn away from your sins, you can be assured that based on who God is, he will not change. You are forgiven, and you are forgiven forever. Romans 8 shows us another beautiful, beautiful truth. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But look immediately what he grounds this in. He doesn't ground this in how sincere of a person you are. He doesn't ground this in how you feel. He grounds it in who God is. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's saying God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life that we could not live. Jesus therefore fulfilled the law. One of the best benefits of reading the Old Testament is just being overwhelmed by what it is that you and I can't do. The rules that we can't possibly follow. That's the benefit, one of the main benefits of reading the Old Testament is to see exactly how perfect Jesus needed to be to save us. To see exactly how far we were from ever earning it ourselves. You get to the end of the Old Testament. You get to the end of the Old Testament and still think that you're a good person. Friends, I mean, you are absolutely deceived. The Old Testament shows us just how far we fall short. But it says here, what God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, what God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Jesus came, fulfilled the law for you. The way for you to be forgiven is to be in Christ, right? A buddy of mine, his name's Toby. Uh, he has this friend who's in really good in these high circles in NASCAR, right? I don't know if NASCAR is your thing, but this guy is, and, and he has these passes where he can just go to Bristol Speedway and go down to the pits, go up in the announcer's box. He can go anywhere on that campus of Bristol Motor Speedway. And my friend Toby says, you know, I don't have that access in and of myself. But when I'm with him, I can go anywhere that I want to. Because I'm with him and he's the guy who has all the credentials. He hands me the lanyard, puts it around my neck, and I get to be a VIP for the day. Well, friends, we likewise have no hope of being a VIP. The Old Testament, if it teaches us anything, teaches us that the game is over for us. We can never possibly be good enough. But if we're with Christ, Colossians says he qualifies us to go where we have no business going and to be whom we had no business being because we are in Christ 
Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 11 if you'll scan down to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The last passage I'll ask you to look at is Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 1 through 3. What is this faith that saves? Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I used to read this like, I have to be sure in myself, right? And I don't think that's at all what this passage is getting at. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their condemnation. But by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. If this passage teaches us anything, it's that our senses... Our feelings, our sight, our taste, our touch, what is apparent by our physical ability to apprehend what is around us. If this passage teaches us anything, it is that our senses do not determine spiritual reality, they are things not seen. We can try to get assurance through all kinds of different channels. Ways that are good, ways that are bad. But here's what I want to leave you with. If you are trying to get your hope of being safe in eternity, by the way that you feel, you might be playing into the devil's hands. Because he is incredibly adept at influencing human emotions, right? Our emotions are Genesis 3 emotions. They're fallen. They're not trustworthy. The Bible gives us a picture of assurance that, that looks like this. You were, you were never supposed to get your assurance from your feelings in the first place. Your salvation is not secure because you feel it to be secure, your salvation is secure because God is who he says he is. And if you place your trust in Jesus, you can know that it can't be insecure because God himself cannot change. So place your hope there. Your salvation is secure because God is who he says he is. And I, I know that those of you who know me and know how I understand the Bible to work... I'm all the time talking about genuine faith, genuine repentance, all of these things. And, and all of that is on the table, right? I'm not 
I'm not sidestepping any of that stuff. I think that it is possible for people to be deceived, for people to think that they are Christians and they are not. And, and if you listen to any ten of my sermons, you will know that I'm trying to warn folks from a false sense of assurance. But it is important for us today to remember what it is that our assurance is founded on. Because if you are placing your trust in Jesus alone, that is evidence of genuine faith. You're not trusting in how you stack up compared to other people. God has attached your security to his name. And if you, who are trusting in Christ, it's your only hope. Jesus is my only hope. It's not going to be because my grandfather was a pastor. It's not going to be because I'm a pretty good old guy. It's not going to be because I pay my taxes or I work hard. If that's you... You are secure. And you have no reason to doubt because God cannot change. I'll close this way. Do you have this kind of assurance? Confidence that because God cannot change, you are safe. Because you, as best as you know, you have related to, the, to God, not according to your own religion that you've privately made up, but because you've related to God through what his word says, that you have recognized, I'm a sinner, I have no hope, but I'm yearning for that, that one who, in whom there is no darkness at all. And so, therefore, I believe that he offers to pay for my sins on the cross and to place my faith in him. If I'm ever saved, it's not because I've done good works. It's because Jesus did the good works and I'm in him. Do you have that assurance? Well, friends, I have good news. If you don't have that assurance, it's available. You can be assured. This is what the Protestant Reformation was about. Right, when, when security for salvation was, was ensconced inside the church and the reformers say, no, it is those who by faith will be saved. You mean I can be sure? You mean I don't have to, do, I don't have to buy the indulgences? You mean I don't have to follow the 10-step plan? You mean I can now be sure? That based on the goodness of Jesus, I'm saved? In the words of Mark Dever, no wonder the Protestant Reformation lit up Europe. Because all of these people all of a sudden realized, it's possible for me to know that I'm safe. It's not me waiting until the end to see how I stacked up. It's Jesus did it for me. And therefore, I don't have to worry. John 6, 37 says this, and I'll close this way. Jesus said these words, All, or everyone, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? 
if you are trusting in Christ, he will not cast you out. And if you have never trusted in Christ, he says to you, come, so that he will never cast you out. Let's pray.